Welcome to Infinite Consciousness tonight, and thanks for listening. This is Eva Herr, and tonight I have with us Dr. Abram Hoffer, who, from what I understand, is basically the father of orthomolecular medicine. How are you, Dr. Hoffer? I'm fine. Thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. So before we get started, if you don't mind, if you'll take just a minute or two, because I have a million questions for you, and tell us a little bit about who you are and how you came to do what you do. Well, what I do, <clears throat> I, I am a consultant in orthomolecular medicine, but that doesn't tell you much. I'll give you my background. I am a psychiatrist. I became director of psychiatric research for the province of Saskatchewan in Canada in 1950, <clears throat> and at that time we had a major problem, we still do. We had three large mental hospitals. We had many thousand schizophrenic patients for whom we had no treatment. And so I was given the job as director of research to try and develop some information about this condition and how to treat it more effectively. And in 1955, when the university medical school was completed, I was made a professor of psychiatry at the university. <clears throat> And I was professor of psychiatry until 1967. At which time I surrendered both my jobs and went into private practice, first of all in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And then in 1976, I moved to Victoria, where I have been practicing ever since. But I, I, uh, you can gather I've been at this game for a long time. And now I'm just about going to be 91 and a half. So a couple of three years ago, I got fed up with all the Arguments we had to take part in, and so I started my license. I gave up practicing medicine, and I became a consultant. And the interesting thing is that I more or less see the same kind of clients. I, I'm getting even better results when I was when I am not practicing medicine, as I did when I was practicing medicine. You did. Oh, David Hawkins is one of my favorite people. Who? Okay. David Hawkins. You did a lot of work with him, too, didn't you? Oh, and David and Hawkins are a very close friend. He's one of my, um, I was, I'd like to say he's my mentor, though he may not know it. Well, he's a great guy. <clears throat> and he he was the one with, who, with Linus Pauling published our book, which I think is going to remain a classic forever, called Orthomolecular, uh, Orthomolecular Psychiatry. Have you seen, have you seen the book? No, I've not seen that, but I've read every other thing that he did. You I went over your <laughs> website. It's, it's, a, very, it's a very valuable book going up in price all the time. And it was an interesting book. It contains some of the very, very basic information, which is really transforming medicine. Um, where, give us your website, because I've gone over that with a fine-tooth comb, and it's really a good site for information on orthomolecular medicine. Well, I really don't have it memorized. I, I, I never even looked at it myself. Well, if, I'll tell my listeners. It, it, if you it's, uh, Google Abram Hoffer, you'll find it. If, uh, well, if you, if you look up A. Hoffer on Google, you'll find 150,000 hits. Yes, you will. So for my listeners, well, tell them a, what there's a, new book, there's a new book, I think, two new books I think you should read. One's called Orthomolecular Medicine for Everyone. It's a, it's a marvelous textbook. It was a book which I had written 15, 20 years ago, which is totally out of date. And with, with Dr. Andy Saul, he and I did the work, and now it's a beautiful book, <clears throat> which has also become almost a bestseller at uh, at Amazon. I think it's a marvelous book because any physician or any, uh, who wishes to follow the treatment program can do so without any difficulty just by reading that book. Is it by your doctor? It's written by me and by Dr. Saul. I have that book and it's fabulous. Yeah, it and really the, is. The second book that just came off the press, came off Trafford Press, Trafford Press, and it's it's uh, it's about a 130 page book, and uh, <clears throat> in there I analyzed psychiatry as we knew it in 1950, and psychiatry as we knew it in 2007, and it, it is my unhappy conclusion that we did a better job treating psychiatric patients in 1950. Than we do today. Now, I think it's not just my evidence. The evidence is there from the literature. All you have to do is look at it and pull it out properly. <clears throat> there's nothing that says in favor. There's nothing that says that psychiatry is any better. And it's an awful lot that says how much worse it is. Well, I have to tell you something. You don't know me very well, but 
I have a very profound problem with depression for the last decade. Uh-huh. And I was on Effexor, 150 milligrams of Effexor and 150 milligrams of Wellbutrin. Yes, yeah. I went off of it completely and started doing what you said to do on your website. Uh-huh. And that was probably four months ago, and I'm on nothing now but your that. stuff. And I'm not depressed. <clears throat> and I don't fight it. Well, you know, nature never nature never meant people to become uh, to suffer deficiency of these drugs. These, you know what these drugs are? Bad for you. <laughs> they are they, they are poison. You know what a poison is? Yes, I do. When you buy a bottle of poison in a drugstore, they have to have a label on it, don't they? Yes. It says poison, skull bone, cross skull bone. Every medical, every 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 bottle of medicine should have the same label on it because everything that we sell to patients, which is supposed to be therapeutic, is poisonous. It comes from the weak word pharmacos, with a K, pharmacos with a K. And by definition, the pharmacos is a compound which has some value, which is also poisonous. So all of modern medicine is based upon pharmacos. It's based upon toxic drugs, and that's why it's so difficult to get vitamins into the field of medicine, so they're not dangerous enough. Yeah, they don't make money like they do off of the drug. The well, dangerous. They, they make a lot of they, they make a lot of money for people who take them and get well. Right. But they don't make any money for the people who sell them. Right. <clears throat> With one exception, the, the big drug companies who also make the vitamins. I believe there's a statement some years ago that one of the big major drug companies was a major supplier of vitamin C because they made 25 percent of their worldwide drug profits just from selling vitamin C. I didn't but, know. but they would like to see the huge, huge profits that you can get by taking a simple poison, mm-hmm. which doesn't do any good, and yet you can persuade people to use it if you pay enough money for advertising. I hear it over and over again when I talk to people about pharma- depression and pharmaceuticals. Well, I have a chemical imbalance, so I need this drug. Well, you, know, you know, Eva, you're going to have to do something about that. It drives me crazy. Yeah, you're, go- you're going to have to publicize what you're telling me. You're going to have to help educate the public that there are better ways of staying well and getting well than it is to depend upon these terrible poisons. Well, that's exactly why I do this radio show. Well, that's so good. let me ask you this, because I have a list, a long list of questions for you. Before we get started, what is orthomolecular medicine? Well, it was, it was Linus Pauling's definition, <laughs> and, uh, it, and he was a brilliant. He was one of the most brilliant Americans that ever lived. And he became interested in sickle cell anemia. He, he discovered the cause of sickle cell anemia. And at that time, he began thinking about what he called molecular medicine. Molecular. In other words, he had he was the chemist who had discovered how molecules interact with each other. And this is the whole basis of modern medicine. If Linus Pauling hadn't lived, we'd have a different type of modern medicine than we have already. So he was already thinking about the interaction of molecules with each other. <laughs> and then he heard about our work. And we became, we became close friends. And it was about this time at one of our meetings in Vancouver where I was chair. I was usually chair of all these meetings that we had. David Hawkins was at the meeting with me. <laughs> and I was sitting at the head of the table and David was sitting to my right. And, uh, and we went around the table. There were 15 or 20 of us, doctors from the United States and Canada, we went around the table telling each other what we were doing and the kind of results we were seeing. And as we were talking, it occurred to me, here's this fantastic amount of information going around to this very small group of people. No one even hears about it. <clears throat> and suddenly, without thinking, and this happens to me often, maybe, without thinking, I said to the group, I said, hey, I said to the group, and I explained why, we are going to have to publish a book. So they all stepped up with me in surprise. They had gotten used to the things in effect, so they get some pretty dumb ideas quite often. And so, and and so they said, "Well, who will we get to write it?" So, I, so without thinking, I said, "Well, we'll ask David Hawkins to author it." And David said, "What?" <laughs> and jumped. And I said, "I said we'll help you, David. If every one of us will give it a chapter, and we'll help. <laughs> and we'll leave it on right line as Pauling to see if he will also make a contribution." And so David Hawkins agreed. I think with great reluctance he agreed. And then we approached Linus Pauling, and then he he agreed with a very stiff condition. He's he's an honest, but a very ethical type of guy. He said, yes, I'll take part. 
and we wanted him to be an co-editor. He said, he said, yes, I'll have, I'll take part, and I have full power to veto. I don't like the paper, it doesn't go in. We, of course, were delighted with that. That couldn't have been a better condition. So it was, so we set the book up. So then we got to work on his book. So poor David, he must have had the busiest year of his life <laughs> following that uh, incident. And so he published the book also a lot So Linus defined it now as a, as a, a, a more disease is one which is caused by a lack of or a deficiency of, of the natural nutrients which are present in the body, like the amino acids, like the vitamins, like some of the minerals, like some of the hormones. For example, doctors don't know that, but uh, diabetes would be called the orthomolecular disease. <clears throat> because they don't probably most diseases not enough insulin at their base, don't you think? Right, yeah. Okay. So, so that so so it means that when you're treating with orthomolecular, we we depend uh, to a large degree on the use of these natural components. That does not mean very important. That does not mean that we do not use drugs. We do use drugs, but usually we use them very carefully in small amounts. And the drugs are secondary. They are not primary. Modern psychiatry, the primary treatment is a drug. You call the patient and give them a drug. Say, here, my good guy. Here, take this drug. You'll be okay. They're, but the problem is they never get okay, and they never can stop taking their drug. Right. We do use drugs, but we use them like a crutch. If, if you if you crack your leg and you have to walk with a crutch, well, that's fine. You have to do it. But as soon as the leg is healed, you throw the crutch away. With modern psychiatry, you never throw the crutch away. You never throw the drug away because the drug in itself makes you sick. Right. So that's one of the major, major disadvantages. And the result is that I think modern modern psychiatry is corrupt in the United States. Uh, if you if you heard President Obama speak on on the, on the crisis, you'll be amazed at what he says. He in fact just comes right out and blames modern medicine. For a big part of the of the scam uh, that's been going on, I can't agree more. It's I study it all the time. Yeah. So and uh, I, I so I've been practicing. <coughs> I've been practicing in 1950, and I can say the results are sometimes the results are fantastic. We see the results of cancer, multiple sclerosis, diabetes, schizophrenia, schizoaffective manic depressive. There isn't a single disease that could not be helped by. Except, of course, if you have to have surgery, you're not going to replace surgery with medication. So right. we have we have two types of wounded people. We have those who are called the walking wounded, uh, like people with arthritis, and they are the ones for whom there is no treatment except orthomolecular. I mean, there is no treatment with any good. And then we have those who are really wounded. For example, if you're in a car accident and wind up in an emergency unit, modern medicine is pretty good for that. You wouldn't, right. you wouldn't start giving people vitamins if he's, in the bleeding, if he's bleeding to death in the operating room. I would like to cover, there are three things I want to make sure we cover. No, I want to make sure we cover, and I've got a bunch of questions. Depression, bipolar, schizophrenia. Okay. Then I want to cover heart disease. Okay. And I want to cover um, diabetes and uh, well, those you'll, kind you'll of endocrine. To, you'll, have to, you'll have to take charge. Okay. My first question is, I'll also think you speak up a bit, I can hardly hear. Okay. My first question is, I know that you treat the profound depression and schizophrenia yes. with niacin. That's one of the things. Large yeah. doses of niacin, right? Yeah. Now, when, the question that I have here is, when, you, when I have found personally that when I started taking this niacin, and other people, too, I've read about, get um, edema around the ankles. What is that telling us? What you are asking is, why do some people who take niacin develop edema around the ankles? Yes. Well, unless unless they're having problems with their circulatory system anyway, I don't understand why they would. So what is what does that mean? Is it telling us we have a circulatory problem, and how would we? It means it has to be sure that your heart's working properly. Okay. But also, it also could mean that they started taking too much niacin at first. Because it does release histamine, and often when you release too much histamine, you do get some edema. Okay. Usually now, when that happens, you start more slowly. And start starting up with a full dose, you start out, say, with a quarter dose or half a dose. And what is the benefit of having such a histamine release? There isn't any. 
so it doesn't that that benefit, doesn't have his the main. The benefit comes from niacin because you know everyone's making a big to do about cholesterol. Uh huh. Did you know that there isn't a compound better in the whole world than niacin for not for making normal cholesterol? And, and the, the dosage the drug would be what? The drug company spending billions, billions selling statins, which really had no value. So does the histamine, um, excuse me, does the niacin also help with hypercholesterolemia? Yes. What? It's up to what it does. Okay. The only the only cholesterol values that are significantly important are the high density cholesterol. If your total blood cholesterol is high, that's not a big problem. But if your total, if your if your H, the heavy one, the high density cholesterol is too low, that's a problem. Now we discovered. My friends and I, my colleagues and I, in 1954, we discovered that niacin lowered total cholesterol. It elevated the HDL. It lowered some of the other bad factors uh, in bloodstream. And in fact, there was a study done by the American government called the National Coronary Drug Study 15, 25 years ago, where they proved that men who had had one coronary and who took proper amounts of niacin thereafter there was a decrease of 10% in their death and their death rate and a two-year increase in life extension. It's the only compound, in spite of all the advertising you've heard about statins, niacin is the only compound which has been proven to help people's cardiovascular levels better in both men and women. Now, is there a, a, a target dose that you, that, I mean, I know that some people go, you know, 10, 20,000, but... Where, what is, no, where do you look to? The amount of niacin I want is usually just three grams a day. Three grams a day, okay. Yeah. And you break that down in even doses? If you use it, it's available in a 500 milligram tablet, and you start off normally with a half. You start off with a one with a half a pill three times a day, and then you may go up to the full dose, which is one gram three times per day. Okay. You can also buy and you can you can buy this full release niacin in the states. And that's, that's a bit of a gimmick, too, because you can buy standard niacin that will do all these good things for $10 a month. But if you want to get rid of the flush, the trouble with niacin is that you, you have to learn how to take the flush when you first start. But if you, can, if you buy the flush preparation, the non-flush preparation, the same vitamins will cost 200 bucks a month. Wow. And so I know that the heart... When people who have heart disease, a lot of people have a lot of mast cells in their heart, with you know filled with histamine. So, does, is that not indicative if you have a lot of uh, histamine that needs to be released? Is it not telling you well, something? Well, some people that might have too much histamine. Uh, histamine, by the way, is a very important factor. It's a neurotransmitter. No one really knows what role it plays and why there's some of it, especially in the gut. <laughs> The main major source of histamine in the body are in the, in the gut and in the brain. And they are important, and there's no question that niacin plays a role. By the way, niacin has become fashionable. It's become very fashionable. And did you know, did you know that uh, Suzanne Summers, you've heard of Suzanne Yeah, I've heard of her. Uh, she, spoke in, she spoke in Montreal a few days ago to a large crowd of people. And she, in fact, now is now agitating and, and suggesting that people follow orthomolecular medicine. Um, another question I have. If you take these non-flushing forms of niacin or niacinamide, does it have work. the same... Um, the, uh, yeah, you sometimes have to take them away and they don't work as good. Because okay. many people just don't want to go through the flushing sequence. But, but they don't work as well and they usually cost a lot more. Okay, that's what I wanted to know. All right, um... And what about hypercholesterolemia? You're one of the few people that ever writes anything about that. Well, what can I, you I tell think, us about I think, that? I think that when you take niacin, you don't have to worry about it. Okay. Because it's going to be normal anyway. Ideally, I wouldn't do that. If a, if a patient came to me, the first thing I would do is cut out all their sugar. Because mm-hmm. I, I think the major villain when it comes to cholesterol is sugar. So I, I would bring the sugar down to various old levels if I could. That's the main thing I would do. I would also decrease the carbohydrates, but I would not. I would not decrease fat, and I would not decrease protein. 
In other words, I wouldn't object to this steak for breakfast for people wanting to eat that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I would use niacin because it has so many other factors. My friend I, Professor Harold Foster from the University mm-hmm. of Victoria, who wrote a book on niacin called The Feel Better or Live Longer with B3, a very popular hundred-and-twelve book just describing the virtues of niacin. You wouldn't believe what it can do. It, it can help people with NS get well. It's good for depression. It's great for uh, anxiety. Cholesterol works with schizophrenics, but you have to know how to use it, of course. And I suggest that people read my books before they declare themselves to be experts. So let's talk a minute about depression, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia. I know it really works, but I'm just going to say to you, does it really work? And how do, what do you do, and what kind of results do you see, and how quickly do you see well, them? Talking about schizophrenia is going to be difficult, because it depends when you get them. They might have been sick five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. If they have been sick for 20 years, living in a mental hospital, they're going to be damaged by the amount of drugs they've already taken. They're going to be damaged by the fact they have been hidden away from society. They have been almost ruined. We are building up a huge population of chronic patients whose life depends upon medication because they are very strongly addictive. Modern drugs are very, very dangerous, very addictive. They really are, no question about that. <laughs> but let's assume that I can see the patients for the first having had their first attack, say, within the first two years, and they, will, they will come to me, and they will come to me, and if they will follow the program for at least two years, I would expect that 80 to 90 percent would be normal. Now, by normal, uh, let me tell you what I mean. I mean they are free of signs and symptoms. An example would be a very... A very talented young artist that I saw from Las Vegas, <coughs> singer, dancer, etc. He was he he yeah, he was so sick he couldn't function. He came here and within two years he was back back on stage again. And he was uh, free of signs and symptoms. The second item is uh, getting along well with the family. That's important. You don't you don't find many of our orthomolecular patients shooting their school teachers. Screwing their school children. Most of these serial elders and murderers are probably schizophrenic, and many of them are being treated with drugs. What this, about bipolar? They get along well with the community, and fourthly, and this is extremely important, they pay income tax. So what other things? What about bipolar disorder? Bipolar is now becomes much more complicated. <clears throat> And the way I see it, and you have to remember that I'm, a, I'm not, I'm, I'm not very popular when it comes to modern psychiatry. And the reason is that I have a very low opinion of modern psychiatry. They, a very low opinion. And I, I have divided. I, I am doing actually something that was done many years ago. You had in the states a very famous psychiatrist called Dr. Nolan D. C. Lewis, who was the chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia University in New York. He's a very good friend of mine, Dr. Lewis. And he divided, he did a study that I, I, I doubt any American has ever remembered. He took 70 patients who all were diagnosed. They were then called manic depressive. And there were 70 of them called manic depressive on admission to their hospital. And he followed them up to see what happened with them in time. And he discovered, I think, to his surprise, that after 10, after 10 to 15 years, half of them, one half of the 70 patients that had been diagnosed as manic depressive were now diagnosed schizophrenia. Really? So he went back again over the original data to ask, one was, he asked himself, what had changed? Had it been a mistake in the diagnosis or had the disease really changed its stripes? They concluded that the disease had not changed its structure, but in fact that the diagnosis had been missed. And then he, he pointed out that if these people had taken into account uh, the, the hallucinations that these patients have, they would have picked up their whole material on them accurately. So there is, there is, it is hard to diagnose to make a distinction between, between the schizophrenic and schizoaffective, which is a halfway group, 
between and also the pure bipolar. My own definition is quite simple. If they have a lot of mood swings, and during their manic states, if they're high, <coughs> they have they are hallucinated. With, uh, no, sorry. If they are if they are hallucinated all the time, they're probably schizophrenic. If they're if they're hallucinated only when they're high, they are schizophrenic. In fact, and if they are never and if they are never hallucinogenic, and they're clearly bipolar, they respond pretty well to different types of programs. I should I don't want to leave the uh, leave the idea that all you have to do is throw vitamins out of it. It's a lot more complicated than that. But but there is a particular program for each condition and one has to vary the amount of vitamins which are used if one wants to get to the the right result. Do you have to take um your other vitamin uh B vitamins along with the niacin to make that's it a very right? that's a very important question. A very important question. Because many of my colleagues who are really interested in what I am doing, they have ignored very obvious facts. They have ignored the fact that in all our work, we never claimed that schizophrenia was a vitamin deficiency. <laughs> we claimed it was caused by a niacin deficiency. And what bothers me is I find so many people who go to various clinics around the country to, to, to get treated by orthomolecular methods. And all they give them is a bunch of, uh, and all they do is give them a bunch of vitamins that do not follow the injunction. It's got to be nice. I've seen so many patients who are given 20 different vitamins that don't respond one bit, which is not good enough to be true. Mm-hmm. So schizophrenia is very important to understand that schizophrenia is not the deficiency of all the vitamins. It's the deficiency of those three. And to, I want to, I want, I have somebody listening tonight that, has the kind of bipolar problem where they don't hallucinate. They just get deep, dark depression or yeah. the manic high and aggressive violence. Well, now, now we're talking about <coughs> niacin here may not be the answer, but there are answers. And the, 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 whole, the whole dose answer is that you have to find out why they are depressed. You know, in, in psychiatry, they pay too much attention to names, calling people things. Mm-hmm. You diagnose this, you diagnose that. It doesn't matter what you diagnose, they all get the same drug. What's important is not what you call them. What's important is how do you get them well. Right. In other words, you have to know why they are sick. And we now know, and we've worked about this in our book, <laughs> that nutrition is extremely important. You'd be amazed how many people are very sick from depression simply because they are eating foods to which they are allergic. Yes. So we have, we have to dig into their diet, find out are they allergic to milk, dairy products, are they allergic to eggs. I, w- I would guess that 75% of all the patients that I see <clears throat> have one or more major food allergies. And take it from me, they are not going to get rid of their depression until they also get rid of these foods. And the many other things they have to do. Many of them have to take probiotics. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they have to take probiotics in order to clean out their, their pathological bacteria and to allow the good ones to come back. So nutrition is extremely important. Secondly, right. you want to have to go after the right vitamin. It might be a deficiency of C, or B6, or folic acid, or B12. It can be anything. And it can be not only a deficiency, it can also be a dependency. It can be due to excess use of alcohol. Uh, excess use of sugar. There are, I would say, at least 12 different reasons why people can become depressed, which is all related <laughs> somehow to nutrition. And until these are discovered and worked out, they're not going to get anywhere. So just to some people to find someone who is depressed and, and give them lots of niacin will certainly help some, but it's not going to help them all. All right, now I want to talk about for a, you touched on sugar a minute ago, so I want to talk about, I have some questions about that, and I have some questions about minerals. And then I want to move on to uh, amino acids. Uh-huh. My question about sugar is, I know that a lot of people that have depression also have hypoglycemia. Yeah. And well, they go I, together. Yeah, they do, don't they? Yeah. And I want to talk about polyphenol, chromium, vanadium. Do you think 
that. Well, he, and that's why that's why in treatment has to be individualized, and that's why it's important for the patient to go to a doctor who really knows what he's doing, in order to give that patient exactly what is needed. There's no point just giving him 50 different things, just hoping that you're going to give him one that's going to be correct, which is what happens too much today. Yeah, well, there's not enough Abram Hoffers. That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> we well, don't have enough there, of you. There will be more. I hope so. Especially if you do your job properly. So let's talk about minerals, magnesium, zinc, selenium, copper. Minerals don't play such a great role except for zinc. What about magnesium? Zinc is zinc and oh, magnesium is well. They're all important. It's hard to say which is most important. That's the most important has the right ratio of calcium to magnesium. That's the most important has the right ratio of copper to zinc. This is all described in that book that I mentioned at the beginning of this interview. And minerals are extremely important. I had a, I had a, a, a young woman of 80, and she was literally starving to death. She, her sense of taste had gone totally flat. Couldn't taste a thing. Food tasted absolutely awful. So she was back to eating lots and less. And she came to see me. You know, I, I suspected right away that she was deficient in zinc, which is one of the main symptoms of a zinc deficiency, is in fact that you do lose your sense of taste and smell. And so I put her on uh, my program and took a lot, what I thought was a lot of zinc. And she, she kept coming back to see me for two years and wasn't getting anywhere. So one day I was getting kind of fed up with her and with me because, you know, a doctor doesn't like to see a patient ever gets well. Mm-hmm. So I said, Mr. So-and-so, I said, I don't understand. Why do you get to come to see me? I'm not healthy. So she said, Dr. Hoffert, she said, at least you're trying. So I saw, I saw the courage in her eyes. So I said, okay, I think I better try harder. So I changed my tactics. Instead of giving her a tablet of things, I started, I started giving her the liquid. And what's the amazing thing, within six months, she was enjoying her food. And five or ten years later, she came bouncing into my office to tell me how well she was. I think that that's an important thing because you don't absorb all those. You have to absorb it. And she wasn't. And that's one of another factors that makes it complicated because many allergic foods, for example, milk. If you drink milk, you don't absorb your minerals very well. It talks about milk being high in calcium. Well, it may well be. When it certainly doesn't get too very often, and if you give a person zinc with the, with a glass of milk, it'll go right through them. They don't give it, they don't absorb it. So again, with the minerals, you have to you have to be careful. Now, in most cases, you don't have to be a, you don't have to look upon each patient as a lifetime research subject. <laughs> uh, I often get very frustrated at the number of lab tests which are ordered for these people which are totally unnecessary and which have never been shown to play any role. I think the important thing is to use good medical common sense. And if they're not, if they are not uh, reporting to the program that you have them on, say to yourself, what am I doing wrong? Maybe I should change it. Do you, uh, Andrew Saul said something the other day, abnormal mineral metabolism, but he didn't. He couldn't elaborate more, and he said, "You know, that's a question for Abram. What is that, and what do you do for it?" What was, I'm sorry, I missed the question. Abnormal mineral metabolism. Well, I think I think that's pretty rare. I think that's extremely rare. It's something that the average doctor is not going to see very often. But most of the time, you'll you may see a problem with calcium and magnesium. So I usually give them stuff uh, just as a precaution, especially women who don't like to get a crick in their neck. And even men will get that. The only ones I'm easily really worried about are zinc and copper, uh, especially around here where I live in Victoria. And the problem is often too much copper because of the uh, acid water coming out from Japan. Mm-hmm. And this is the copper plumbing that we all have. Mm-hmm. Well, but we do have to take that into account. And usually if a patient has been working with you long enough and they are not responding to the treatment you have followed, that might be a good idea to do a proper analysis of hair. Hair analysis could be helpful. What yeah. is the symptom of copper deficiency? Uh, usually there are uh, 
too much blood because they have trouble making blood. Okay. Well, they, what also, if, they also become hyperoxidized. That's interesting. What about, um, so I know a lot of people who have something called magnesium, including myself, magnesium wasting. I can't keep it. So I started using magnesium chloride lotion that Norm Sheely told me about. I had high blood pressure, Abram, and it dropped 70 points in three weeks when I started doing that transdermal magnesium. So can you tell us why that happened? Why can't somebody hold on to magnesium? I have no idea. Okay. All right. Let's talk a little bit about amino acids then. Well, amino acids are a lot less, in my opinion, the use of amino acids has been greatly exaggerated. And I, I find that in North America, I would find that the most common source of amino acid deficiency would be in places like Africa and Asia. Because usually whenever you have malnutrition, that's when we are going to have a deficiency of protein. But I have found that to be much, much of a problem. And I really don't worry about amino acids here. So I don't use them specifically. I know there's some doctors still using amino acids for depression, and I think they can be helpful. But I don't, I don't pay much attention to them. I think that's what we should concentrate on are the people we can help, the ones who are most likely to be sick, and then to move on further from there. Well, what about people who have um, heart and vessel diseases? You know, where, where the heart muscle is not strong enough, and their vessels aren't. Um, they're, you know, they're not strong enough. What do you do for that? If they don't, if they don't, if they don't respond to things like vitamin C, which just strengthens the collagen. And how much vitamin C are you talking about? Well, I, I'm talking about at least two grams a day. Okay. And they also should be taking lysine. L lysine. And how much are you talking about there? I'm talking about anywhere from one gram per day to more. Okay. They, but again, these are rare. What about arginine? Arginine? Arginine and lysine. I don't, I don't use that. The reason, the reason is that I'm trying to, to use a program which is very economical for the patient. I don't like patients that have to put out 100 bucks a month for the mm-hmm. rest of the year of their life when they don't have to do that. And I have found that all these, all these nuanced programs, all these new programs that one reads about, I haven't had to use them, and if I don't need to use them, why do they need it? Okay. Because I have seen probably over 10,000 schizophrenic patients since 1955. Well, when you're talking about lysine for the heart and vessel, what does lysine do for the heart and vessel? It strengthens the walls of the uh, of the capillaries. Okay. And, and the arteries. Okay. Um, let's see what. I'm, oh, what about um, iodine and fatigue and thyroid issues? You know, so many people go to the doctor, and the doctor will do the thyroid test and say, your thyroid's fine. But I don't think they do the right test to really... There's a big debate, and in fact, there's a small school of medicine breaking off where they maintain that the TSH test by itself doesn't tell us anything. And that if one wants to find out what's wrong with the thyroid, one has to do for the testing. One will have to do T3 and T4, and you might even have to do a therapeutic trial with the natural, uh, with the whole thyroid, desiccated thyroid rather than just using it synthetic. So there's a great big question about that. I, I tend to think that the laboratory tests are overly exaggerated, and I would prefer to, to depend upon the original values like T3 and T4. But these are totally out of fashion, and doctors have lost their license to practice medicine because they had the temerity to think maybe there's another way of doing things. So do you, if someone, let's talk about lab testing for just a minute, across the board. If someone, I mean, when it comes to minerals and serotonin and your um, sugar levels and things, if the lab test is a little bit above normal, okay. does that well, still mean well, it's okay, or is it telling you something? It means Should you start looking yeah, at yeah, it, yeah. though? You have, to understand, you have to understand mathematics. You have to understand chemistry. There's always a range of variation. If, if the normal value is, say, between 10 and 20, 
and the reading is nine, many doctors go into a panic, which is totally ridiculous. Uh, they should say this is totally normal. In fact, I tend to play down laboratory tests unless they are really, really out of line. They have to be totally out of line. So I, I think there's a fantastic amount of money wasted. If your president, if President Obama wanted to save billions of dollars, he would simply wipe out all the laboratory tests in the United States. Well, I have another question for you here. Uh, are you familiar with Doc? And I didn't ask Andrew this, but since you work with David Hawkins, are you familiar with all of his work on consciousness? No. Oh, okay. Well, uh, um, do you think that the same laboratory test uh, values? Is the same for everyone? I mean, everybody body, everybody, everyone's body is different. Well, theoretically, it's supposed to be. But unless the test is being validated, it's what we call validation. If you have ten different laboratories, you send them all one, you send them all exactly the same sample of hair, and they all come back and give you exactly the same values, then you've got a very good test, haven't mm -hmm. you? Yeah. But when you can bet on it, it won't happen. You'll find a fantastic variation. So the only way one can be reasonably sure of a test is to repeat that same test over and over and over and over. And that can become terribly expensive and, and totally wasteful. Okay. Let's talk a minute about vitamin C, because I know that's one of your passions. Yeah. I think it's a great question. Talk about it. Pardon? Just tell me about it. Tell me where your heart lies there, what's most important about it, and what will it do, and how much should we take? And <clears throat> well, I'll tell you, I can't tell you about vitamin C because it's too much to talk about. <laughs> there, in, the, in the past six years alone, there have been four or five excellent books published, total hardcover books that have been published on the enormous value of vitamin C. There's just no way one can minimize it. But it has to be in large doses, right? No, no. Uh, 200 milligrams no, no, no. is not going to do anything. No, it doesn't have to be. There is, a, there is a natural variation. If you're looking at humanity, if you're looking at, say, the height of adult males, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's what we call a, a bell-shaped curve. You know about that one. Mm -hmm. It's a bell-shaped curve that you can characterize by saying that the values have to be close to minus two standard deviations from the mean. In other words, we're going to have some guys that are 3.5, and we're going to have a very few who are 7.5. But there's a natural variation in this test, and this applies, this applies to almost anything we're dealing with. So one has to find out what is the natural distribution, and then whether and whether the lab tests are showing that there's any maldistribution. Are some people having too much, or are some people having too little? And even that by itself is not enough, because you also have to think. Uh, you know, one of the biggest problems, one of the biggest problems in medicine is thinking. Did you know that? Uh, I think it's a problem. I don't, I don't, the board. I, I don't mean much by the patient's thinking. It's by doctor's thinking. And so I think that we have to, first of all, doc, common sense doctors who can think. Then let me give you an example. When I was interning in 1949, there was a 80-year-old woman who was dying from some type of cancer. I don't remember what. And she was suffering from severe pain. And I, I just started out as an intern, so I went to her GP, who was in charge, and I said, Why don't you give her some morphine for her pain? He said, I can't do that. I said, Why not? He said, She might become addicted. So here's, he's, he's prepared to let her suffer the last week or two or month of her life just because he's afraid of the word addiction. I mean, where's the common sense in that? Let's, if, you, if you're trying to cure a cancer, yes. well, is 200 milligrams of vitamin C going to help you, or do you have to move on up to several thousand? With vitamin C in cancer, you might have to go so hard. I have seen since 1955, I've seen, no, since 1967, I've seen 1,500 cases of cancer. And you'd be amazed at how many of them have made complete recovery just by using vitamin C and also vitamin B3. That's my I've, I've written several books about that. You probably have seen them. So what, in your time, at D is in David 3. Yeah. I start with 12. So what 
kind of dose of vitamin C do you take? Most people take a pill a day that's like 500 milligrams. No, that like cure cancer? It's starting off with cancer. I usually have them take the powder and they dissolve. They dissolve 12 grams. Mm-hmm. 12 grams of ascorbic acid, that's vitamin C powder. I have that's 12,000 milligrams, right? Right on. People don't. And I have them dissolve that in 12 ounces of juice. 12 ounces or two, and now they take, uh, they keep that in the fridge, and then they take during the day, they, they, they drink two ounces of that vitamin C mixture six times a day. Mm-hmm. In other words, they are drinking two grams of vitamin C into their body six times a day. And the reason for that is that vitamin C is very rapidly gotten rid of, excreted, and if you give them a vitamin C shot in the morning and nothing the rest of the day, but by mid-afternoon, they don't have any anyway. So you have to put it in there regularly. Now, once they show me that they can tolerate this quantity, <laughs> then I'd like to have them increase it until they reach uh, what they call a laxative level. Mm-hmm. And they go, they go so high that so they, it acts like a laxative, and then they have to cut their dose down. One of the men that came to me 20 years ago had a terrible lymphoma. He had surgery, radiation, surgery, radiation. Never responded to anything. I put him on my vitamin C program. That's 20 years ago. And he's still well today. So he was in about a couple of years ago just to shake hands and say hello. And you mix that with vitamin Did you give him vitamin D3 yeah, too? that's right. What and kind so of I, dose? So I asked him. I, I, said, I said, hey, how much vitamin C did you think? He said, I took 40 grams. He took 40,000 milligrams of vitamin C each day. So I said, did you have diarrhea? He said, yes. So I said, what did you do? He said, I sat in a can and read all day. <laughs> and how much D3? And what is the difference from D and D3? D3 is niacin. Oh, I thought you said D3, no, like no, David, but no, you said D is in boy, right? I'm sorry. Vitamin D is extremely important. Yeah, vitamin D is extremely important, especially with all this recent work as an anti-cancer. And uh, I, do give my, I do give my patients a lot of vitamin D. Usually, I started with 12,000 units a day. Is it D or D3? D, A-E-C-T. Right, but, but is it... Actually, actually it's what we call D3. That's what, I was in, yeah, that's what I was trying to figure yeah. out. D, D is in David 3. That's right. Okay. Now, we've got about five minutes left. Is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't already talked about? What I want to talk about is how, how will it be possible for you to persuade President Obama that the president's Canadian and American psychiatric system is for the birds. And my opinion is that if we were to export every North American psychiatrist to Mars, they would be better off and we would be worse off. Sorry. They would be worse off and we would right. be better off. <laughs> I tell you, I don't have a big... My doctor, I'm 49, and three years ago when my blood pressure started creeping up, he uh-huh. said, Eva, you're getting old. So I have to give you these two blood pressure medicines. You know, if he had just told me to do minerals and niacin and D3 and C, which is what I do now, and I'm on no blood pressure medicines, rarely do I take one. You know, I got well, but he didn't know that. Well, I think the, the problem is that the universities, the medical schools won't teach this stuff. The medical journals won't publish it. Uh, Medline will not review it. There seems to be a there seems to be a uh, a conspiracy using the word privately. There seems to be a conspiracy to prevent this information from getting out. I don't say there is a conspiracy. I think it's just that people think alike that they act alike. But I think that unless we get this information out, we're going to continue to have problems. People are going to lose their homes, people are going to go broke, people are going to die. Uh, 48 million people cannot get medical coverage in the state. That's a bloody shame that they can't do that, but maybe maybe another way of looking at it is that if you can't get medical coverage, you won't get killed by modern medicine. Let me say that time we have. I want to ask you about it. One more thing. we got about three minutes left. Do you know anything about iridium and germanium? I know nothing about 
I know there are metals, but that's all I know. Because that's the newest thing that's caught my attention is the oxy, oxygen effects of germanium. But I, I think I think that all these things are going to have to be looked at very, very carefully. But what I want, what I don't want to see is people jumping too soon. I don't want people to say, "Hey, that's a good idea," and within two years he says, "I've got a new treatment." That's totally impossible. It's impossible to develop any new treatment and to build the medicine quite so quickly. Yeah. I, I think I think basically we we no longer have. It is not a scientific issue. It is not a scientific issue. It is a political issue, a political and economic issue. I don't doubt that. You know, you know, you know about. Uh, I just finished the one thing that really bothers me. Do you know that in the states, a million and a half kids are now being treated for bipolar? Using, yes, I do. Using atypical drugs, which are very toxic. You hear that, did you? Yes, I do. I mean, the, the I school tried this. to put my children on them, and I started giving my children B3, yeah. niacin, and magnesium, and it helped them tremendously. Well, it won't kill them either. Yeah. But at least did you know that, the, according to the New York Times, a, 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 a front front page released about six months ago, the three major doctors from Harvard who uh, put the idea out that you could treat these kids were each given a million and a half bucks for the drug company. Don't even get me started on that. It burns me up. Did you know that? Yes, I do. Okay. Well, that's the sort of thing that... Burns me up, that's all I can say. Yeah. And it burns me up that the teachers in the school... Try to convince their parents to put their kids on these drugs. Yeah. So I started Xeroxing stuff and inundating my school yeah. with stuff about worth the molecular medicine. They finally left me alone. I know. They so called I in a psychologist trying to make me put my child on that drug, and I wouldn't do it. So now, so the, so the important thing is that how can we break the barrier? Actually, how can we break the information barrier? The information is there. There's a you have an idea how much information has been published. I've published 32 books all by myself, and there are hundreds of books available today. But none of it gets, none of it ever gets filtered into the medical schools. Uh, I don't know what to say except the people have to demand it. Well, I don't know what to say either. That's our problem. I really don't. But I thank you for coming on my show. I'm grateful for the work that you do. You're very welcome. And I, all I can say is I'm honored that you came. Okay. to talk tonight. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hopper. Thanks. Good night.